you know, of the wall around the city of Jerusalem. And he strategically placed the people to contribute to the work. They worked shoulder to shoulder. And we're using that as a template here in in our church, this working shoulder to shoulder concept, that finding your place that I was talking about earlier this morning. Because we want to give everyone an opportunity to serve. And it's going to look different for every single one of us because God has given us different gifts and talents. But as we use those gifts and talents, we can actively take part in the rebuilding process. Of course, we know these principles found in Nehemiah are not just for the church, the local body, but it's also for our personal lives as well. And so we can take and apply those principles to our lives. We're going to be in the fourth chapter this morning, and so you can turn there in your Bible if you want, Nehemiah chapter 4. But let me say that we're going to be in that fourth chapter for a couple of weeks. There is a lot in here to unpack, and unpack, and so um, you can put your little bookmark or your little string in there if you want. We also have the words up on the screen too, so to kind of help you out. But if you'll recall, after Nehemiah had prayed and then he planned and then he placed the people, they took up the cause with a hearty "We can do this" attitude, and they began the good work. Now, how many of you know, maybe from your own experience, that when you decide to be about God's work, there's going to be opposition? Yeah. And maybe you've experienced this in your own lives. You pick up a good cause. You, you have a heart to make a difference. You're excited to somehow bring some good, some value, maybe into your community or into your school. And, and you just want to, to invest And so you move forward, believing God's opened up this door for you, and and you start, you know, going about your good work, and then all of a sudden, you feel blindsided when attacked. Nehemiah is a perfect example of what to expect when being about God's work. So before we read the, the text for today, let's take a minute and pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you, you put such glorious riches in this for us, that we can apply it to our lives, that, that it is just as, as real for us today as it was when it was written down. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would help us to grab hold of, of the practical application as we study your word this morning. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 4 and verses 1 through 3 we're going to go into this morning. Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers, what does this bunch of poor feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was standing beside him, remarked, that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked along the top of it. How is that for a, yeah, let's do this thing, huh? (laughs) Obviously rather defeating if, if listened to. We can expect opposition when we're about God's work. This is not the first time that Sanballat is mentioned in the book of Nehemiah. 
back in chapter 2, scripture tells us that when Nehemiah had first arrived in Jerusalem, Sanballat and Tobiah were very displeased that someone had come to help the people to rebuild the wall. It's generally believed that Sanballat and Tobiah were more concerned with the political impact of Nehemiah's arrival than the religious aspect. But nevertheless, Nehemiah's presence was a threat to their power. And in every generation, there are those who are opposed to those who are called to fulfill God's plans and purposes. When we engage in God's work, there will be opposition. There will be those that will oppose us. There will even be those that hope we will fail. So better that we expect that there will be opposition as we're about God's given work than to be surprised that there would be ones that would come against us. So whether it be that we're in the rebuilding process as a church, or whether it's in our own personal lives, when we're about God's work, we can expect opposition. When this plays out in our own lives, we sometimes misunderstand who we're engaged in the battle with. It's not co-worker Alice, who took the credit for the neighborhood garden project that you put 90% of the work into. It's not the co-worker Alice. It's not classmate Aaron who keeps talking behind your back as you're wanting to, to start this drive to collect shoes for children overseas. It's not her either. We must know our true source of opposition. This will help us keep a proper perspective. Scripture is very clear to us as to the source of our opposition, who our enemy really is. And Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. We need to know who our enemy is. What happens if we don't know who our enemy really is, is we look at our co-worker Alice, and we get offended, and then we carry that spirit of offense to other relationships, and we have a hard time forgiving her because we don't have the right perspective. John Bevere writes a great book called The Bait of Satan, and it talks all about being offended, and it's easy to do. We're human. But if we can keep a proper perspective about who our enemy really is, it's going to be easier for us to go to God and ask, help me to forgive co-worker Alice. Help me to forgive my classmate Aaron, or whoever it may be in your life. It's easier to go to God and ask for that help so we're not carrying along that in our hearts. There are two opposing kingdoms at work in this unseen world that Paul is writing about. God's kingdom, the good, and of course, evil. And even though there are enemies, as scripture states, there is one enemy that's behind it all. By now, you've probably guessed the name. And you may have come up with Satan, the devil, or the evil one. And you would be correct. You've listed three of his about 25 names that scripture gives us. I visited with my daughter-in-law via text the other day. And some of you may have met her or seen her. Um, She's the one that's married to our oldest son, Jason. And she stands about maybe this tall. She's like maybe five feet. 
And I always gently and lovingly tease her that soaking wet, she probably weighs about 100 pounds. She is just a dear, sweet little thing, and we love her so much. And, and, and I have to say, though, when I stand next to her, I, I do kind of feel like a giant <laughs> because she literally is just, just this tiny little thing. And, and I should do that without heels on and so you can see really how tall she is. But, but in that, um, even though she's this sweet little thing, she's tough in a good way. And she has to be because she's in the Army, the Army National Guard. And so as I was talking with her the other day, again, through text, because she was, she was uh, serving at the time, she shared with me some of the things about her work as a second lieutenant. And I've cleared this with her because I don't want to jeopardize national security. And I mean that with all sincerity, because we do put our, our uh, messages online. And, and I want to make sure that we are very careful because she's protecting our country. She has information that not just everybody in the room would have. And part of her responsibility, um, and actually majority of it, is, is Army intelligence. That's the area in which she works. And, and so part of her responsibility is, is knowing the enemy. In fact, she said that knowing the enemy is, of course, the major portion of the information on their operations order. They must know their enemy and their enemy's tactics in order to be successful in battle. Just as the army must study their operations orders in order to learn about their enemy, we too must study our operations orders as Christians. Of course, I'm referring to studying our Bible to learn more about the enemy that we have as followers of Jesus. In studying the names of Satan, we can know his behavior his schemes, his plans, we can become aware of our adversary's tactics. So we're going to break this study down into two parts, his names and his tactics, because otherwise it was going to probably be a 45-minute sermon, and I'm thinking that no one was game for that. So it's going to be two parts. Today, we're going to be just looking at his names, and again, next week, we're going to be looking at his tactics. Because we want to be shrewd as serpents, wise as we move forward in God's work, whether it be the rebuilding of the ministry or in our personal lives or other endeavors that God has for us in the future. So I titled today's message, What's in a Name? What's in a Name? Biblically, there is lots in a name. It can be descriptive, and I think a great example of this is, is Jacob. Jacob's name meant deceiver. And, and if you recall the story, um, and if you don't, you can catch me afterwards and I'll give you references for it. But, but he was called deceiver, and appropriately so, because he deceived his father into giving him his brother Esau's birthright. His name was descriptive of his behavior. And as I stated earlier, Scripture gives us about 25 different names for Satan. And at first I thought about just taking a few, thinking, well, we'll bring in his tactics as well. But I felt that if I did that, I wouldn't give us an accurate picture of what the Bible says about him. And of course, not having an adequate picture of our enemy makes us vulnerable. And it'd be like being sent to the front line or being positioned behind enemy lines and not know fully who the enemy is not a good place to be. 
And so therefore, as your pastor, I felt it was my responsibility to give you all of the names. Our daughter-in-law would certainly say, know your enemy to the fullest extent possible. She herself stated that military intelligence pays close attention to the first paragraph of their operations order because it's in that first paragraph that their enemy is named. To help make the names of our enemy clearer than perhaps I would have done on my own, I'm going to be utilizing in part an article that was written by Dr. Richard Craigsers, and, and he had titled it The Names of Satan, and so I just want to give credit where credit is due here. But as we go through this extensive list, please keep in mind that this is not to scare us, not to intend are not intended to, to have us revert back to when we were a kid. You know, you didn't want to dangle your leg over the edge of the bed because you thought for sure there was something underneath there that was going to gra- grab your leg and pull you down into the darkness. Okay, we're not going to have to revert back to that, okay? Because guess what? We need to be aware of him, but we do not need to be frightened of him. So that's what we need to know. We want to be informed about our enemy so that we can be successful in the battle. And we're going to ease into this by starting off with a few of the names that are more familiar to us. Satan. Okay, everybody I'm sure has heard that one. And his name means adversary. He is the chief adversary both to God and to humans. Another name that is also more familiar is Lucifer, coming from Isaiah 14, 12. And this term means morning star. It literally means a light bearer, the shining one, a picture of Satan's original position in heaven with the angels, created beautiful, and then he fell. He still is able to masquerade as a beautiful being to snare Christians, so we need to be aware. Satan is referred to also as the angel of the abyss, and this comes in Revelation 9.11. And he's given proper names of Apollyon and Abaddon. And these Greek and Hebrew terms mean that he is the destroyer. The name devil is only found in the New Testament. And it comes from the Greek language, meaning to accuse and slander. Dragon is found multiple verse, in multiple verses and means literally serpent sea monster. A dragon is a terrifying and destructive beast who seeks the total devastation of God's people. And again, this is not an image meant to to terrify us, but to inform us. Of course, most, if not all, are familiar with the garden stalker in Genesis. We all remember his name, right? The serpent. This term refers to his crookedness, his craftiness, and deceitfulness, and his aversion to God's truth and God's people. The meaning of Beelzebub and Beelzebul is not really clear, but it is suggested that it means Lord of the house, and that may refer to Satan's authority over the demons. Belial and Beliar, found in 2 Corinthians 6.15, was a term used in the Old Testament in the context of worthlessness. A description of his character and work is clear in the name of the wicked one or the evil one, 
and that's found mostly in the New Testament. Another familiar name that everyone has experienced is found in Matthew 4, 3 and 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, the tempter. This name indicates that his constant purpose is to cause people to sin. This term seems to indicate that he presents the most plausible excuses and suggests the most striking advantage for sinning. We've all had that fruit dangled in front of us. Surely it won't cause us harm. Surely this is just a a harmless way to satisfy a longing. Our enemy is called the tempter. The name, the God of this world, is found in 2 Corinthians 4.4. It says, He has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. Here's where we see his sponsorship of false religion and all the false cults and systems which are against Christianity. He presides over the anti-God lifestyle. The prince of the power of the air shows that he is a leader of the evil angels and prince over this vast army of demons which carry out his orders. He rules with tyrannical power. C.S. Lewis's book, if you've read that, The Screwtape Letters, gives a reader a perfect example of Satan's agenda under his name. Prince of the power of the air. Satan is also called the son of perdition in that he can and will cause ruin or loss of physical, spiritual, or eternal, or loss in physical, spiritual, or eternal arenas. He will destroy those that refuse Christ's love and mediation. Prince that shall come is another name given to Satan. And that pictures him as a military commander of an army, occupying the front, doing horrible atrocities. Again, these names are meant to inform us, not to frighten us. Satan is also called the strong man, Matthew 29 and, or 12:29. Satan is powerless to prevent the kingdom of God because he has been bound. He can frustrate us in living out the Christian life if we're not aware of him though. The prince of this world seems to refer to his influence over the governments and political arenas of the world, that he is the one who is the ruler and guards his position. Now remember that, our battle's not against flesh and blood. We're talking about the political arena, but it's not Republican or Democrat, okay? Remember who our enemy is. The phrase, angel of light, best describes Satan's masterful ability of imitation, and his counterfeit proposals given to individuals. He is cunning as a wolf in sheep's clothing, disguising evil in a good-looking package. I think about pornography when I think about that particular name of Satan, angel of light. Daniel 7.8 gives us the name Little Horn. In Daniel's vision, he sees Little Horn as just symbolic power, where the enemy is uttering great boasts. Roaring Lion is probably another name that is more familiar to us. Coming from 1 Peter 5.8, the apostle gives us this word picture emphasizing the devil's continual persecution and his role as persecutor of believers, 
prowling about looking for someone to devour. Hang on there. We're, we're almost there. We're almost there. Maybe we should have started doing like a countdown. Okay, number one, number two, I'm giving you guys hope. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. I didn't want to leave any out because I didn't want anyone being vulnerable to not knowing the completeness of this enemy. So again, awareness of our enemy is one of the first or one of the first orders of operations when we're at war. Just so just three more names. Another more familiar one is found in John 8:44. He was a murderer from the beginning, scripture says, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Name for Satan, father of lies. Satan's opposition to God includes a vast host of fallen angels and his counterfeit proposals, which do not derive their source from the Lord. It describes Satan as the source of all that is untrue, the father of all lies. King of Babylon is found in Isaiah 14.4 as well and is generally accepted to mean confusion or nonsense. And lastly, where's the collective sigh around the room? We're here. King of Tyrus. King of Tyrus. The name given Satan meaning imposter. Satan portrays himself as a rock in Ezekiel 28.12. And of course, we know who the one true rock is. Jesus Christ. So there you have it. The various names given to Satan in Scripture. Being familiar with these names will help us to understand his behavior. Of course, now the question we need to to consider is, do we really believe that he is real? Or are these just names on the page? Is he active in our world? I think most of us would, would say, yes, we believe that he's active in our world. Yes, we believe he's real. I mean, just look at the endless wars, the violent conflicts. I mean, just last week alone, one day, two school shootings. I think we can surmise or deduce that, yes, Satan is active in our world. There is suffering. There is abuse. There is a lot of evil present. So I think we can say, yes, Satan's real when we consider what goes on in our world. But then we have to ask the question, well, what about our own lives? Do we think that Satan is is working in our own lives? Would we answer the same? I believe that, that he would want us to think one of two things. I really do. One, that he isn't really all that active in, in our world today. And, and, and when we think about that, um, we can think about entertainment, how entertainment has, has painted Satan in red, with horns, with a little tail, with hoofs, you know. And, and usually it's not that big of a deal that he's lurking about. Or it may be that, that he's just a, a harmless avenue of reprieve from a boring life. That's sometimes how we can see him in the entertainment world. And, and what an incredibly inaccurate picture that really is. And a harmful one at that, I might add. Just because we see evil in the world, we don't always think that he might be actually interested in what we're doing as well.
The second way that some view him can be just as harmful when we give him more power than he really has. And this view can lead to to fear and feelings of powerlessness. And so I want to offer a healthier way to view Satan. And this comes from Chip Ingram's book, The Invisible War. He says, our foe is formidable. The goal of Satan is to destroy God's people and discredit the cause of Christ. He is not to be taken lightly. He is real. He was an angel, the highest of all created beings, who rebelled against God out of pride. We must respect our foe, but not fear him. Our responsibility is to become acutely aware of Satan's methods, but not be preoccupied with them. We can become educated about his schemes by examining his names in in the scriptures, all of them reveal something of his tactics. Scripture is very clear about his agenda and his targets, Chip writes. But he is limited, and we have no need to fear him if we follow God's instructions in faith. We don't need to fear or feel powerless. In fact, as Chip says, we do not fight for victory, we fight from victory. Jesus has defeated Satan and death. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood, for only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Christ already won the victory. He has the power of life which he offers to us. He's conquered death. He's defeated the enemy. The war has already been won, but the battle still rages on. And this is why we need to be aware of the names of Satan and to know his tactics. We need to, to not react in fear, but rather that we can respond with understanding. Knowing who our enemy is and what his tactics are can help us to prepare for the battle to keep things in proper perspective. Knowing that God is behind our task is the best incentive to move ahead in the face of opposition. Now, I confess, like a lot of pastors, I still have a lot to learn on this topic. A lot. And, and it has been a really hard week this week. Knowing that this is where God wanted me to go in Scripture, Now, there's a reason it was a really hard week. There was a lot of busyness, and Satan loves busyness because you get tired. But I do believe he didn't want me to share this with you. And that's a huge reason why it was a really hard week. So, as I put the message together, I realized Satan would certainly rather that the subject of spiritual warfare pass quietly under Christian's radar. But I don't want you to be uninformed. I believe that God brought us to the book of Nehemiah for a reason. He's with us in this rebuilding process. I've said that before. He's wanting to build a firmer foundation of this ministry so that it can be built up upon. Because he has even greater things in store.
Next week, we're going to look at the tactics that the enemy uses so that we can better acquaint ourselves with any of the flaming arrows that might come flying our way. And, and we want to be prepared to be able to stand our ground and do battle effectively. Because I believe as we continue in cooperation with God in rebuilding the ministry and taking it even to a higher level, the enemy is going to rise up in opposition. And I can say that with surety, because in all honesty, he already has. He already has been at work. But while Satan may be the god of this age and the ruler of this earth, God is still on the throne. He's still in control. He is sovereign. He will allow those things to happen so that we can turn to him and learn to trust him more and that we will become stronger as followers of Christ. As I mentioned earlier, these principles are not just for the church, the collective body here in Hill City. These principles are for us individually as well. Now, maybe you've never considered that there is a spiritual war taking place. It is invisible, um, but you can see the effects of the spiritual war. And, and that's where that conflict thing comes in amongst uh, not only God's people, but, but people in general. That's where that evil is coming out. It, there's evidence of the spiritual war that, that is, is invisible. And so maybe you've just never really considered that. Um, but today you're realizing you're not even sure you're 100% on God's side yet. In this invisible war, there is only two sides. There's, there's not a neutral territory to be held. And so maybe you're here today and, and you've just never even considered that. You've never been aware of that. It's okay, I get it. It hasn't been that incredibly long ago. I was in your shoes. And so please know that you're not alone in that understanding but maybe you want to explore that more. Maybe you want to, to learn more about what does this really mean to be on God's side. And so I just want to invite you, if that's you today, to just take a minute before you leave and just, just visit with the prayer team. We would love to, to help you, you know, understand that more fully and help you take those next steps. But I also recognize that, that as I shared about, you know, co-worker Alice and, and, uh, the uh, fellow student, Aaron, that maybe it kind of scraped a little bit of a, a scab off for you. Maybe you're realizing, oh, you know what? I did let that person offend me. I haven't forgiven that person. And maybe you're here and you want to, to take that next step and just asking God to help you to want to forgive that person. We certainly want to give you opportunity for that as we pray as well because we know God tells us to forgive it doesn't mean that it's easy, but it does mean that he'll help us with it. And so we just want to make sure that you're aware if that's where you're at or if there's some another burden that you walked in with today. Um, please know that we always have prayer available after service, and, and the prayer team is always um, more than happy to, to pray with, any, with you for any need that you may have. So, well, let's play, close in, in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Lord, you supply what it is that we need to navigate the, uh, the ground of the enemy because he's the prince of this world. He's the ruler of this world. But we know that you're more powerful than he is. It's not that he's an opposite of you with equal power, not at all. You are far more powerful than everything combined. 
And so, Lord, we know that you will equip us with everything that we need, and this is a starting point of understanding the names and the behaviors associated with the name of our enemy. Lord, we thank you that our battle is not against flesh and blood. And we thank you that even though the battle still rages on, that you've already won the victory. And so we can stand in confidence. We can hold our ground as followers of you because we know that you're in this and that you will protect us and you will give us everything that we need to fight this battle. You've given us our, our operation orders. God, we thank you for that. To you be the glory, Lord, as we continue to walk faithfully in obedience with you. You are so good. In Jesus' name, amen.